Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers Marie Antoinette, the 1930s Hollywood film about the last queen of France, at least uh, last until the French Revolution. The last episode covered a similarly themed uh, set of films. It was called The Vulnerable Throne, and it had capsules of The Bitter Tea of General Yen, Knights of the Round Table, Land of the Fowers, and Rasputin and the Empress, all about rulers who lose their power often because of some uh, love affair. And uh, of those, The Bitter Tea of General Yen was the longest one. It was like seven or eight minutes. The rest were just really quick thoughts, sometimes just a minute or two. But I thought I'd combine them there because of that theme. So this episode concludes the whole season of Classic Hollywood. But uh, the next episode, starting the new season in uh, January, is going to have some similarities to this one. We'll discuss that at the end of the episode. It's also uh, later than usual because I renewed my Lost in Twin Peaks series in November. And as always, the re-editing process on those where I'm covering Twin Peaks episode by episode day-to-day, week on each episode, a day on each element of that episode. Uh, The process becomes so time-consuming, I tend to fall behind on everything else. So that happened again, and uh, this episode was supposed to go up uh, last Wednesday, but it's going up a little late, so better late than never. And here's what I've been up to on, uh, well, really elsewhere, uh, starting with the podcast. So on my other podcast feeds, uh, Lost in Twin Peaks, I continued my Season 3 coverage, resuming it in November, I've done episodes number 40 through 43, which cover parts 11 through 14 of season three. I have an illustrated companion for each one on my site where you can see images going along with whatever I'm discussing. So like character statistics, news context, Time Magazine covers, all of that stuff. Uh, It's a really good uh, thing to sort of glance at as you're listening. And uh, for the week of podcasts, I have episodes uh, for each one that are Uh, you know, cover different themes. So like welcome, out of town, back in town, mythology, current events, in the weeds and archive. And uh, for this week, I've started number 44 on part 15. I have an illustrated companion and I've got the welcome episode up uh, out of town and back in town. And uh, tonight, after this episode goes up, I'll be releasing another episode. uh, Well, maybe earlier than tonight, but at some point today, Uh, more in town, where I cover more of the stories that take place within Twin Peaks. So that's the approach I take to that. Definitely check that out if you're into Twin Peaks. It's technically a, uh, even though it goes super in-depth, it is a intro cast where I don't give away spoilers for upcoming episodes. So you can actually listen to it as you watch Twin Peaks if you want really in-depth coverage your first time through. On my Twin Peaks cinema feed, I released episode number 19 on The Vanishing. This is part of a season on disordered stories, narratives told out of order in interesting ways. This is a Danish thriller, and I connect it to Twin Peaks in a variety of ways. It's one of my longer episodes of that podcast, in fact, and I have a cross post to go with it on the site where I talk about it a little there. I was a guest on another podcast this uh, past month, Creamed Corn in the Universe, where I did an episode on Sarah Palmer. This is a podcast that goes character by character through uh, Twin Peaks. So I was asked which characters I want to cover. That was one of the ones I mentioned. We had a great discussion on her, including really the whole scope of the character. Um, I won't go further than that in case you haven't seen Twin Peaks, but uh, she has many facets, let's say. In fact, I had a cross post on my site where I introduced the uh, podcast that I titled The Many Faces of Sarah Palmer. On YouTube... Uh, released Twin Peaks Conversations number 15, audio only, where it's actually with the host of Creamed Corn in the Universe, Colin. 
I had him on my podcast as well as him having me on on his. And I cross-posted that on the site, as I did with the next episode of Twin Peaks Conversations, which has also gone up in the interim since the last Lost in the Movies episode. This uh, conversation was with the director of The People's Joker. Her name is Vera Drew. This is a film about a trans Joker who is lives in this weird alternate universe version of kind of Gotham City. And uh, it got some notoriety because it was premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and then got uh, basically squashed by DC Comics and Warner Brothers because they were concerned about uh, intellectual property. So we had a discussion about that, but also about Twin Peaks because she's a huge fan of that. And she actually reached out to me, wanted to discuss uh, Twin Peaks on that podcast. So definitely check out both of those episodes on Patreon for the $5 a month tier. I had the part two of both of those episodes with Colin, with Vera. So you can check those out uh, as a patron. And then for the dollar a month patrons, I released the exclusive advance on Twin Peaks character series number 66, 65, and 63. Uh, 64 was a character who was already published. Um, You can check that out on there, find out the identities of them. I don't like to give it away to uh, the general public, but you get uh, advance entries on all of those uh, characters as they go along three a month as a patron. I also have a belated November main podcast episode coming up on uh, Patreon, but uh, that's not out yet. It's going to focus on the 2000s and the 1960s, uh, some reviews of films, and then a lot of capsules, just brief thoughts on many films I watched from those decades. I made a concerted effort to watch uh, films from those time periods in this past month. Uh, just thought it would be interesting to revisit, and it certainly was. On my site, I have a cross-post for that update, so you can actually read the whole lineup there. It's already up, even though the episodes themselves aren't up yet, and also had cross-posts for my September and October Patreon updates a little after the fact. So, pretty busy in the past month, but let's move on with this podcast, this subject, and let's talk about Marie Antoinette. The cap of liberty, Louis. Put it on! Put it on! Stick you like I would any other pig. <laughs> <laughs> you brutes! You cowards! Is this your liberty? You'll be punished for this, I promise you. You'll be whipped in the streets like the beast that you are. Shut up! <laughs> you mustn't do that. It's not right. You mustn't strike a woman. It's cowardly. Oh, you must do that. It is right. Marie Antoinette is a 1938 film uh, from the golden age of Hollywood, and very much so. You know, it kind of displays all the virtues of that period in my mind. Uh, sometimes I think that any film... Uh, you know, the the basic template that you should use for like your average film, where it's just sort of trying to tell a story, communicate with an audience, and that's that, would be like the 1930s method. You know, that, that, that style of shooting, that style of performance, that's the essence of cinema and everything else is either a deviation or a, you know, exciting experiment. Like, I feel like the baseline for cinema, let's say, maybe should be that sort of... Uh, 30s film although uh, with action movies I think maybe it should be uh, 90s action movies but that's a whole other topic the story of Marie Antoinette as you would suspect is uh, the life of Marie Antoinette from the time she was a teenager in Austria an aristocrat married off to the king of France to the time that she was executed at the guillotine 
in, I think, 17, early 1790s. This version of the story tells a more complete version of Mary Antoinette's life than the Sofia Coppola film. Both were suggested by Lawrence. He was interested to hear what I thought of the comparison between them. And we'll get to that in a second. This film was divided very much into two halves. In fact, there's actually an overture at the beginning, there's an intermission, and then there's exit music at the end. So it's very much in that epic format of like Ben-Hur or Lawrence of Arabia or Ten Commandments. So this is a very grand kind of Hollywood production. It was the last production that was going to be closely supervised by Irving Thalberg, the great MGM producer, but he actually died very early in the pre-production. And his wife was Norma Shearer, the star of this film. So this was obviously a very personal project to him. And there's a little bit of irony in how this film turned out, because it was one of MGM's most expensive productions. In fact, to the point where it was a hit, and it still didn't make back its money because it was so expensive. And that's kind of funny to anybody who knows Thalberg's history, because he was the one who brutally cut greed and short-circuited Eric von Stroheim's career in, in a lot of ways, although he did continue to make some some big films after that. But that was a heartbreaker for him, was that, you know, greed was taken away and cut down because it was so expensive, and Thalberg was dismayed by his wastrel tendencies or whatever. But then Thalberg's last movie, I guess, posthumous last movie, ended up apparently being just as much of a bank breaker as that one. The film has a couple different directors. Julien de Vivier, the French director who made Pepe Lamoco, and also W.S. Van Dyke, you know, colloquially known as Woody Van Dyke. He directed the, Th the Thin Man films. Unfortunately, I can't for the life of me find out what uh, Duvivier directed, you know, what he shot and what Woody Van Dyke shot, which is unfortunate because uh, I do feel like there's some interesting discrepancies in the film, and I'd be interested to know if that was between the directors or if that was just something inherent in the material. The film is very much of two halves. The first half is very much focused on the, you know, Marie Antoinette, her her personal life, and her troubles with the king, and, uh, you know, his grandson, who's her husband, the future, you know, the Dauphin, the future king of France, and also a lover that she finds, a Swedish diplomat, I think. What struck me about this part of the film was how similar it was, actually, to the Sofia Coppola film. I was surprised to the extent to which they actually told very much a similar story. Now, the second half is very different from the Sofia Coppola film. It's almost entirely focused or I would say actually entirely focused on the revolution. The lead up to it and then the fall of the monarchy, their attempted escape, and then eventually their imprisonment and execution. So it's a very much a rise and fall kind of narrative. I thought this was uh, quite a good film. And in fact, in comparing it to the Sofia Coppola film, I feel like this one is actually has a stronger story, stronger narrative to it. And Coppola's has a stronger style. Although I, I didn't mind some of the things that people criticize about this one. Certainly it's immersed in that glorious uh, Hollywood style where everything glistens and glows. But Woody Van Dyke has been criticized. He was called One Take Woody. So it was like, get your take off, move on to the next thing. They, they didn't feel... I saw one comment on a Turner Classics movie site where somebody was saying, you know, they wished Ruben Mamoulian had directed it, that it had a more elegant graceful camera style versus the more blunt style of Van Dyke. And I can see that, I guess, but it didn't bother me at all. I, I didn't feel that it was 
particularly slow paced in a painful, lugubrious way. In fact, a few weeks ago, I discussed the Shanghai gesture by the fantastic director, Joseph von Sternberg, and I still felt his style didn't quite suit the material. It was slow. I didn't feel that with this film. Um, it, it worked for me on that level. Certainly, Louis the Sixteenth was a much, much, much more compelling figure in this film than in Coppola's. And to be fair, I don't think she was really interested in telling that story, um, which is fine. But in that film, you had Jason Schwartzman playing the king as kind of a, a little bit of a space case almost. He was kind of vacant. Robert Morley plays him as just this very, very pathetic figure. And uh, a figure who's much more conscious than the Jason Schwartzman depiction of his limitations and his mediocrity and his failure and you just feel kind of sorry for the guy. Like, Charles Lawton was supposed to play the part, which in a way would have been brilliant casting, but he might have been a little too big for it in a way. I think Robert Morley is perfect in the sense that he just seems inadequate as the king. And, you know, there's points where just your heart kind of goes out to him. Now, on the other hand, John Barrymore plays the father. And, I mean, it's John Barrymore. I love that guy. And the ironic thing is, for the first, like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes or whatever, I thought it was Lionel Barrymore, who I also like. But uh, at some point, you know, I, I watched the film in pieces and I saw it was John Barrymore. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Like he has a certain kind of vitality and charisma that just like leaps off the screen to you. So it's like, yeah, of course that's John. He creates a Louis the Fifteenth who's just so compulsively watchable. It's great. Tyrone Power is also in this film. He's Count Axel von Fersen, who is the Swedish aristocrat who Marie Antoinette has an affair with, uh, I think just suggests that it's a one night stand. And then when she becomes queen, they separate. And the interesting thing about Tyrone Power, I just have, I mean, this is just, maybe this is totally a pointless thing to bring up. For me, he's an interesting figure because I used to watch the, those biography programs on A&E way back in the 90s when I was like a kid or a teenager or whatever. And I remember one came up on Tyrone Power. And at that point, I was already pretty immersed in film history. I knew a lot of film stars, but I didn't know anything about him. And so I was kind of surprised. It's like, oh, there's this, there's this movie star who existed who I didn't even know existed. So for me, even now, 20 years later, he's always kind of like a latecomer to the Hollywood pantheon. Like, this is a weird analogy, but I would kind of analogize it to uh, Hank Jennings, the character in Twin Peaks, who shows up about four episodes in. And he always feels like a latecomer to Twin Peaks, even though, you know, he's four episodes into a 30 episode series. And they even mention him in the pilot. Yet something about that impression lingers with me of like, no, this guy wasn't part of the original crew. So for some reason with Tyrone Power, I always feel that way. You know, oh, this is the movie star I found out about later. The big star of the movie, of course, is Norma Shearer. And in a way, she's well cast, although it's odd casting. She was quite a bit old for the part. She was uh, 36, I think, when the film came out. And of course, Marie Antoinette was 15 when she became queen. So... That aspect is a little odd, but she really throws herself into the part and generates a lot of sympathy. I also noticed in this film how much she looks like Glenn Close. I'm not sure I'd, I'd ever kind of picked up on that before, but that really struck me on this viewing. And then the final scene of the film, they show her in like her bonnet, totally shorn of makeup, just looking like an average woman being dragged to the guillotine and she's just resigned. It draws attention to a subtle anti-monarchy message, or at least a sensibility that's present in this film you know this is a very american film of course all the characters have american accents except for 
many of the aristocrats have British accents, which I always find amusing. It's like, you know, we can only imagine like upper class people as British, like even if they're French or whatever else they're supposed to be or German, you know, the Nazis are always British. Even in Star Wars, the Empire, they're all British, but that's kind of amusing. It is a film from an American sensibility. So there's a sense in which it's considered ridiculous that these these ordinary people are elevated to this absurd position. And in a way, it's like you're almost seeing the real Marie Antoinette at the end of the film. Now, that said, this is not a film which is at all populist. There's no trusting of the people. There's basically an opposition between a misguided but well-meaning monarchy and a terrible, terrifying mob rule. When I was watching it at first, I was thinking, oh, yes, that's right. Woody Van Dyke, he was uh, extremely very far right wing and anti-communist. And apologies to Woody. I was thinking of Sam Wood, <laughs> so a totally different director who did, in fact, found this quasi-fascist militarist unit with Ward Bond in the early 40s and stuff like that. Totally different director. Woody Van Dyke, I don't know anything about his politics. Um, when I looked him up, he was a Christian scientist, and he actually refused medical treatment for cancer a few years after this film was made and ended up committing suicide, which is a bit strange. I guess Christian scientists are opposed to being to medical treatment, but not to suicide. I don't know. But anyways, I don't know where he was coming from in those terms, if it's something in the screenplay. It did feel very much present in the direction, though, particularly at the beginning of the second half. So in the first half of the film, we don't see like the people of France at all, ever. It's very much like the Sofia Coppola film in that sense. They're just 100% off screen, never present. We're totally in the world of the aristocracy. But the second half of the film is very different. We do focus quite a lot on the people and their resentments and their taking over the palace, but it's presented in this very skeptical, hostile way. The voice that we hear spreading anti-monarchist views is, I think, the Duke d'Orléans, who is uh, you know, a relative of the king and ends up being the one to condemn him to death in the in the assembly so this is a very cynical view of revolution in fact it reminds me of something i revisited today i returned to my review of the dark knight rises and how that film has this anti 99% message you know bane as a demagogue who leads the people astray i want to conclude with something else from an entirely different direction i think this film does a an excellent job doing something that hollywood films generally get us to do which is to sympathize with and identify with these figures separate from society and above society in some way. I want to quote something that I've seen on Twitter a lot. It's something leftists like to select. And it's a piece of text which sort of comes from an unexpected source and is extremely powerful, I think, in providing a counterpoint to this sort of viewpoint. So I'm going to close on that. This is the passage. The talk of these meek people had a strange enough sound in a formerly American ear. They were free men, but they could not leave the estates of their lord or their bishop without his permission. They could not prepare their own bread, but must have their corn ground and their bread baked at his mill and his bakery and pay roundly for the same. They could not sell a piece of their own property without paying him a handsome percentage of the proceeds, nor buy a piece of someone else's without remembering him in cash for the privilege. They had to harvest his grain from gratis and be ready to come at a moment's notice, leaving their own crop to destruction by the threatened storm. They had to let him plant fruit trees in their fields and then keep their indignation to themselves while his heedless fruit gatherers trampled the grain around the trees. They had to smother their anger when his hunting parties galloped through their fields laying waste the result of their patient toil. They were not allowed to keep doves themselves, and when their swarms from my land's dovecoats settled on their crops, they must not lose their temper and kill a bird, 
for awful would the penalty be. When the harvest was at last gathered, then came the procession of robbers to levy their blackmail upon it. First the church carted off its fat tenth, then the king's commissioner took his twentieth, then my lord's people made a mighty inroad upon the remainder, after which the skinned freeman had liberty to bestow the remnant in his barn, in case it was worth the trouble. There were taxes and taxes and taxes, and more taxes and taxes again, and yet other taxes upon this free and independent pauper, but none upon his lord, the baron or the bishop, none upon the wasteful nobility or the all-devouring church. If the baron would sleep unvexed, the freeman must sit up all night after his day's government is unprintable, and finally, if the freeman, grown desperate with his tortures, found his life unendurable under such conditions, and sacrificed it, and fled to death for mercy and refuge, the gentle church condemned him to eternal fire, the gentle law buried him at midnight at the crossroads, with a stake through his back, and his master, the baron or the bishop, confiscated all his property, and turned his widow and his orphans out of doors. And here were these freemen assembled in the early morning to work the lord, their bishop's road, three days each, gratis, every head of family and every son of a family, three days each, gratis, and a day or so added for their servants. Why, it was like reading about France and the French before the ever-memorable and blessed revolution, which swept a thousand years of such villainy away in one swift tidal wave of blood, one, a settlement of that hoary debt in the proportion of half a drop of blood for each hogshead of it that had been pressed by slow tortures out of that people in the weary stretch of ten centuries of wrong and shame and misery, the like of which was not to be mated but in hell. There were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons, the other upon a hundred millions. But our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas, what is the horror of swift death by the axe, compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? What is a swift death by lightning compared to death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over, but all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. And that's from the Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. So that's it for this discussion, but not for Marie Antoinette. I'll get to that in a second. Before we get there, if you have any feedback on this podcast or really any of the previous podcasts, any of the subjects I've covered, uh, please let me know and I will uh, share it on this podcast. I'd love to share listener feedback from time to time. I also want to invite you, of course, to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can also become a patron on patreon.com slash movies. There's a whole full archive of episodes there in addition to the material that you get new each month. Okay, so it's time to preview the next episode. The next season's going to be random subjects. Uh, it's not going to have a theme. I, I like to alternate between theme seasons and non-theme seasons. So this one was Classic Hollywood. Next one will be more uh, random reviews, uh, also collected from things that I previously recorded for Patreon. And one of those is Marie Antoinette. So we will be back with more Marie Antoinette in a month, this time, of course, the Sofia Coppola adaptation. So here's a taste of that uh, to take you into the new year, 2023. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. Thanks for listening and see you next time. She spends like mad. <laughs>
people of France are hungry. The king and queen are complete blunderers. 